Hello there, Stevie Taylor here. Welcome to episode 43 of the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Leon Gare. Now let me read you the bio he sent me. Leon Gare is an overweight, ageing bass player from Los Angeles who was depressed about the daily hair loss he experiences. He hates camping and his idea of roughing it is Netflix standard definition. His friends think he is considering becoming an astronaut because each day he spends many hours sitting around the house taking up space. His team of psychotherapists recommend that he get involved in a project of some kind. This is the reason Leon has become involved with Stevie Taylor and the Gig Life Podcast. Credits. Woolworths Food Stores, $30. Luna Park, two coupons worth $10. And a Telstra calling card, $8.55 remaining credit. What a crack up. Now here's, here's the real deal bio. Leon Gear, bass player, composer, arranger and producer, originally from Los Angeles, now living in Sydney, best known as the bass player on Gino Vanelli's Brother to Brother album, and since then has gone on to play bass on over a thousand recording sessions in Los Angeles, New York, Nashville and Sydney, including Gino Vanelli, Barry Manilow, Jose Feliciano, Barry White, Don Ellis, Boy Meets Girl, Hanna-Barbera Cartoons, Home and Away, the Chad Wackerman Group, Amy Dixon, Tommy Emanuel, and many, many more. So I'm not going to say any more. Sit back and enjoy this chat that I had with uh, Leon Gear. Ladies and gentlemen, Leon Gear. Cheers. All right, I think we're rolling. Leon Gear, hello. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me in your um, in your beautiful house and in your fantastic studio. You've got some uh, pretty amazing instruments. Oh, thanks. Around here, thank you. Yeah. Um, so you were telling me before you played a club gig today? Yes. Yep. Tell us yeah. a bit about that. Oh, it's just a cabaret backing two cabaret acts. Today was in, in Malabar RSL. Yep. Yes, and. Uh, Joe Macri is the band leader, and Bill Cazellis was the drummer. Mm-hmm. Just a trio. Today. Right. Cool. Yeah. And how do those things sort of go down? Um, how do they come about? I'm not sure. I get my call from Joe, who's, okay. who's the band leader, and yep. he would get his call um, from, I suppose, the agents or whoever's in charge of putting those those shows together. Yeah. 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 And then Joe's the band leader, so he chooses who he wants right. to, to play and in the how band. How long have you been working with him? With Joe, many years now, but... Five, six, seven years, maybe. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah. I'm not his only bass player. He hires lots of bass players. But, okay, but yeah, yeah, right. And and how many how many gigs a week do you get from from him? Oh, it's not so much per week. Uh, oh. They come and go with when it and, and work with him as with everyone else 
comes in unpredictable waves these yeah, year, these yeah, days. You just saying, yeah. yeah, you never know when it's going to get busy or get quiet. But. Mm. Yeah, but you sort—I'm sure you prepare yourself for that, though. Yes, and you were yeah. saying before May is usually a bit of a slow time. Yeah, it's yeah. it's. I just always it's always been that way ever since I've been in the business. You know, you, right. you just. My dad was a musician, so I learned okay. young to put money away and yeah, you know not yeah. just go through it all as it comes in in good times to yeah. like prepare so that, for the slow times. Is that a time you sort of hit away on holiday or something like that? Or oh yeah, no, no, no. I just um, if if it gets quiet, I've always got something to do. There's always instruments to, that I've always wanted to start working on or try different strings set up or right. So there's always something to do. I never find myself with nothing to do. Right? Do you set all your own? Bases up? No, I, well, oh, I do okay. the minor stuff. Yes, yep. I do yep. the minor stuff. But then yep. I have uh, Pierce Crocker does okay. most all my setups right here in Sydney. Right. And how many guitars do you own right now? I don't know. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe 150, oh, something you, like that. Really? Yeah. Oh wow. But they're not all that. Not all professional. A lot of them yeah, are just no, collectors' no. items and, yeah, and yeah. strange. I collect strange. Well, not strange, but I collect stringed instruments from all over the world as a hobby. Right. Oh, and my. I don't play these professionally. I hire guitar players to play them, but I love the South American reentrant tuning, which is right. used on like ukuleles, banjos, anything that like a guitar goes E A D G B E up, 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 up all the time. And same with a four or five string or six string bass. Yep. But any instrument that has a reentrant tuning, one or more of the strings dips down and then comes back up. So like a ukulele, okay, ding, gotcha. boom. Gotcha. So it starts high, then it goes down, then it goes up. A Venezuelan cuatro is boom, 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 boom. The high string is dropped down an octave. Right. And the effect is when you're strumming very fast, you don't get the... On a guitar, if you strum slowly, uh, say, an open E chord down, then up, you hear the arpeggio of the the notes rolling up and then down. But any instrument with reentrant tuning, like haranas and vihuelas... It just sounds like bank, 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 bank. You don't know where the up or the downstroke is. So yeah, it's right. quite a different uh, cluster of, of uh, when you're playing chords. Right. It's beautiful, quite a beautiful sound. Fantastic. And what's your, you, well, you don't have to say if you don't want to, but what's your prized, prized guitar? Oh, I don't, the, the one, don't have one, no. You don't have one, really? No. You mean in my basses that I play? Or, okay, let's, let's go with uh, With basses, yeah. yeah, I've got one, I've got several Rick Maruzzi basses. Those right. are my favorite go-to bass because it just does everything. Yep. Um, but And I've got one in particular, but it does change. I've got sometime for a year or two, it's this one, then the next year it's that one. and just. Uh, but they're all great. All, all of Rick's basses are, are spectacular. Right, yeah, because yeah. for pictures and, and videos and stuff I've seen, it's a, almost a custom-looking kind of bass that you play. But do you also play the, you know, the old... St- Standard jazz or P bass? Yes, yeah, I've yeah, got a, yeah. a 1960 precision bass that Have I've you? had oh, since nice. 1972. Wow. And uh, a Rickenbacker yep. hollow body bass, and yep. Hagstrom, a couple of quirky. Um, but they're kind of one-trick ponies. They only have one sure. particular, not the precision, that's quite versatile. But yep. the Hagstrom, the Rickenbacker, I have a bass dobro. Um, they have a unique sound, and it just sounds like that. But you can't change it. I wouldn't play it all night on one job because it can't be easily used in different genres of music. Gotcha. Do you have one bass that basically covers everything? The Maruzzi's do. Uh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They really do anything. Yeah. Yeah, right. They're just, it's quite a simple thing. It's, it's wonderful wood made by a craftsman yep. and using Bartolini pickups. Right. And uh, it's quite a chameleon. 
Yep. Yeah. And do you get them custom made for yourself, or you bu- you buy them? Oh, I bought them from Rick. He yep. he made all of them yep. um, that I bought. I saw only, a custom order type. Only one okay. that I yep. that I designed sort of with him that yep. I had had a hand in saying I'd like this here and that there. But the rest, he would just make them, and I'd say that's beautiful. I'll, I'll take it. Great, yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's cool. All right, man. Well, let's um let's roll back to the beginning. Um, you're from Los Angeles. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So let's um talk a little bit about your your upbringing. You were saying that you're you're Born into a musical family? Yes, yep. yes. I was born in Hollywood. My mother was a professional dancer, mm-hmm. as my grandmother was too. And my father was a professional drummer. And uh, I was born there and raised there. And started playing music at a young age. My dad started teaching me snare drum when I was about five. Like rudimentary? Type. Just rudimentary. And yeah. How to hold sticks and yep. basic things about reading quarter notes and eighth notes. Yep. And then I... Played a little bit of piano, then played a little bit of guitar, but really wasn't interested in anything. My mother was trying to make me a dancer, which I was terrible at and not interested at all. Then when I was 14, um, a friend in the neighborhood had a garage band, and I'd never heard a a real band play live. I'd heard the radio, but never heard a band, and I just popped over to, to listen to these guys play. Something happened there. I heard a bass for the first time live in a through a bass amp, and that rich deep sound just thrilled me and then then i knew that's what i want to do i want to play the bass and right. and it just stuck from then on that's, right. that's all you, i wanted to do had you played a guitar at any stage yes i was yet? i played i owned a guitar and i had guitar lessons but okay. i wasn't very good at following through or practicing i wasn't interested but once i latched on to the bass and mm. i was never i never had to be asked to practice or yeah right. i just went for it awesome yeah. yeah um do you remember your first bass yeah, it was a Guild uh, Starfire. Right. Yeah. Did you still have it? No, I wish I did. It yeah, was yeah. a beauty. Yeah. Yeah, it's one of the many that I think lots of musicians have probably let things go for some reason that you think, oh, I'll never use this again. And then yep. a decade or two or three later, you think, oh, I wish I had that now. Yeah, yeah. 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 So what were the steps to becoming a bass player? Was it, did you go straight home from that? from that jam and say to mum and dad, this is what I want to do. Well, yeah, I had How can a, we do it? I, I, I was an, I'm an only child, and okay. just before, several months before that, I had said to them, I want to be a veterinary. I'd love to be a vet, because I loved animals, still do. And they looked disappointed and kind of said, oh, okay, well, we'll do the best we can to help you through with that, and we'll support you in any way we can. And then, uh, but I mean, I was only 14, I wasn't, going to college or anything so it just was going to be my interest and I said that's what I wanted to do then when I came home and said I've heard this bass I want to play the bass that's what I really want to do is play bass and they both were relieved and said oh great we can help you with that (laughs) we know where to who to get you lessons you know who to get where to get good lessons and uh, they sent me to Morty Korb which was a Los Angeles bass player fantastic studio musician Mm -hmm. and I took lessons from Morty from when I was 14 up until about 18 right so why did you stop the lessons? Oh, I just started working. Okay. Right, yeah. All right. By 18, I was starting to go out and do gigs and stuff. Right. Um, do you remember your first band? Yeah, I had little bands when I was 15 and, you know, just local kid bands we had. You yep. Know, we weren't probably great. I don't think I have any recordings just or anything. Just a garage band yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Um, so when was your... Um, Sorry, at 18, you started working with the American... 
Youth Symphony. Youth Symphony. Yes, yeah. playing double bass. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mele Mehta was the conductor, who's Zubin Mehta's father. Right. Yeah. Okay. So w- when when you were getting the bass lessons, did it start as an electric bass lesson, or were you? Were you it was both. It was both. Okay. Morty was a doubler. He yep. played electric and upright. Yep. And so I studied both uh, at the same time, electric and upright bass, with him. Okay. Did you find the transition from one to the other? Yeah, it's a little. It's quite different, actually, but. Right. Um, when you're studying both, it, it's uh, there's a lot of similarities as far as the pitch and the tuning, but um, the technique is different and different, totally different set of muscles required. Right. Um, do you play in some a Latin band as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was playing in LA. There's a lot of uh, Latin community, and so I was playing with uh, some Latin bands, playing weddings and parties and things. Mm. We played a lot of. Uh, well, pop music of the day plus plus Latin tunes in mm. in, in our area. Mm. Yeah, were you doing the symphony at the same time? Or was this yes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, and you professional at eighteen. Yes. Right. So, yeah. did you ever have any other job? No. Really? You no. Never had another. No. Nope. Even to this day. To this day. Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who are your who were your inspirations, the musical inspirations, bass inspirations? Bass inspirations would be uh, Eberhard Weber, of course, Paul McCartney, Abe Laborio, gee, Stanley Clark, um, and m- many, I guess, you'd say unknown bass players, but just any time we hear a great bass track, and they, they're everywhere, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not everyone's been lucky as, as they have to, to play on a tr- tremendous, you know, have a big volume of work, but um, yep. yeah, there's lesser guys that just don't work as much or didn't wasn't weren't recorded as much, but are yeah. here as well as in LA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And were you were you listening to all types of music at this stage? Or yeah, what? yeah, yeah. Right. I was into everything. So it wasn't one thing. No, yeah, I loved yeah. I loved the variety. Yeah, and right. and also knew that's what I wanted to be was a freelance musician. I never okay. wanted to be in a band or right. or so be you a knew soloist. That, you knew that early on. Yeah, yeah. I love being a part of the engine room and not in the front limelight, but just being part of a team that's backing either an instrumentalist or a vocalist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, what was the first big break? Was Brother to Brother the first? Yeah. Yeah. Right. I was, so, how did that come about? Where were you? I was playing in a little jazz club called The Baked Potato yep. in Los Angeles with Don Randy and his okay. band. And I had, I was also playing with Don Ellis, who was a jazz trumpet player and visionary, music visionary, known for his odd time compositions with a big band. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was always interested in gear for the bass, but, but unique stuff, and you know, trying to find and explore and find different things. So... I met Bob Easton, who used to own 360 Systems, and he introduced me to Wayne Yentis, who was a synth builder and designer. He was it was very good friends with Tom Oberheim, and uh, it was instrumental in the development of the guitar. The, right, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so Wayne, after many meetings, we, we built together. Well, he built it. I just told him what I wanted, and he actually did all the wiring. Two Oberheim expander modules um, with Bob Easton's... Um, pitch to voltage converter for bass. This is all pre-MIDI. So the right. special pickup that converts the pitch to a voltage then yep. sends that out several milliseconds, quite a few milliseconds later. It's late. Right. But it sends it off to wherever you send it. And in my case, I sent it off to two Oberheim expander modules. 
and then a huge giant pedal board that had six volume pedals and 12 on-off switches. And with the feet, I could control LFO, pitch bend, uh, filter frequency. I could hold a note, you know, hit a low C or something and, and sustain it like, like you would on a grand piano or something. Hold yeah. that note and then continue to play the bass or open the filter up oh, as I'm wow. playing. So it was more than just a, an effect that followed the bass, like a, like a chorus or a, or distortion pedal. Yeah. It, um, it really had a voice on its own. And I played that a lot and really got going with it. It was the only one of its kind that, that was built uh, right. by Wayne. Right. And I was enjoying playing that and I was using it with Don Ellis and I used it with Don Randy and I was playing at the baked potato. It was a rainy Wednesday night. Hardly anybody was there. Yep. And I thought, Oh, do I drag this big monstrous of a monster system in? Yeah. Okay. Well just yeah. stop. So, yeah. so the lug for that. Yeah. So what, what are we, what are oh, we talking? well, it's a big rack. It was a big rack. It was about, oh, probably 10 or 12 spaces tall. Right. Uh, the pedal board would be, oh, I don't know, in feet, maybe four feet wide. So I don't know what that is in meters. And um, there's a picture of it on my Facebook page. On the, oh, okay. Uh, there's, a, there's a photo of that system. In fact, that came, that system was taken by Wayne Yentis when I was uh, recording it. Davlinstown, we were doing brother to brother. He came and took photos of it. Right. So I had that big setup, and it had to be plugged in and turned on ten minutes early because you have to wait for the oscillators to warm up <laughs> yeah. so they don't drift. Yeah. And so it was a big thing to set up. Yeah. And I thought, oh, do I drag this thing in now? Yeah. In this rain and play tonight on this Wednesday night. Hardly anyone's going to be in here. And I almost didn't. I almost thought, no, I'll just play the bass, you know. But that little voice said, no, this is what you do. Come on, drag it in. So I did. I dragged it in and set it up, and I had no idea, but Ross Vanelli, Gino Vanelli's younger brother, had just moved into an apartment building nearby, didn't have a phone, so he went to a neighbor and said, oh, can I use your phone? My phone's not hooked up yet. I need to just make a phone call. And the neighbor said, sure, and they got to talking. And the, friend, the neighbor was a friend of mine, a bass player, and Ross started talking to him. He said, yeah, I'm Gino's little brother, and we're, look, we're doing a new album, and Gino's thinking of hiring a bass player, but he's always used synth bass. He's, Joey, the other brother, always played synth bass. Right. Thinking of using, you know. And so my friend said, well, Leon's playing at the Baked Potato. Have you heard him play this new system where it's an electric bass driving synthesizers? He said, no. So well, let's go hear it. So they came down and heard a couple of songs. I didn't even know they popped in. Right. They came in during one of the sets, heard yep. a few numbers and left. And the next day, I got a call from Gino saying, my little brother heard you play last night at this club with the system. I'm really interested. Can you come over and show it to me? And so I said, yeah. So I jumped in the car and drove over and played it for him and eventually wound up doing the album. Wow. That's how that came, that's how that came about, which was a lesson for me to never treat any job lightly, to think, oh, you know, that nobody's listening. <laughs> yeah. There's nobody important out there. I'll that's just take I... the little amp. I'll just, you know, make the lug easy. It's yeah. uh, it was a lesson to me to say, always do you put your best foot forward. Mm. And do you remember those sessions well? That's yeah. It. Yeah. Yeah. So how long did it take to record that album? We, rec we rehearsed for two weeks. Okay. And then we recorded for two weeks. Mm -hmm. And um, did all the tracking in the daytime yep. at Davlin Sound. And Toto was recording at nighttime. Right. Back then, studios were just going literally 24 yeah. hours a day. And uh, so we had a 12-hour block, and they had a 12-hour block. So right. they'd come in in the middle of the night when we were gone and do some tracks. And there was three drum kits there. Right. Jeff Picaro had his drum kit yep. there. Mark Cranny, our drummer, had his kit there. Mm -hmm. And Gino had his kit there. Because right. Gino, Gino's, oh, Gino's a drummer. He's, he's a terrific drummer. Oh, right. And um, 
So they were, with all the three of them, they were borrowing and trying each other's snares yeah. and yeah. swapping symbols and things. And did you get to hang with the Toto guys? No, no. Yeah. They, they had their, their own little, little universe type thing. Well, they, they were there when we were not, and we were oh, there right. when they were not. Yeah. Okay. We never overlapped. Right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And was, it, was there um, an expectation that the album would do as well as it did? Well, you always hope. You never, you hope, you, yeah, you never right. know. Um, mm. uh, this was Gino's, I think it was his fifth album okay. with A&M. Right. And he had all of his, I don't know if you're familiar with his previous albums, they're all spectacular. He's an incredible... Yeah, I, I, I don't really know it till after. See, I heard Nightwalker first. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. That came after Brother to it Brother. Did, That's yeah. also brilliant. Yeah. Well, everything Gino does is yeah, fantastic. Yeah, is. But the ones before Brother to Brother, right. there was all synth bass. Okay. Joe, his okay. brother Joe playing synth. And Joe is a fantastic synth bass player because right. he thinks like a bass player. He doesn't overdo it. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's tempting on a keyboard to just go wild and play bass lines that don't work on a fretboard that right. work on a keyboard but Joe had terrific taste and um, so they had these great albums but they weren't very big commercial successes um, as far as getting on the charts but they were successes musically and artistically yep. and this um, this record it it hit and, and the, the the big hit was I Just Want to Stop the ballad and uh, which was written by Ross, the younger brother, okay. and, and Gino, but uh, but Ross had a hand in that one, and um, that went to number one, I believe, in the states, and that launched my exposure. You know, I was the same bass player, but yeah. all of a sudden, I was popular, right? Because that was, you know, I was exposed. What was that like? Oh, it's fun, huge fun. Yeah, right. Yeah. So you were getting was just calls all the time. Now oh, yeah, it started. It, that's when it started. It didn't happen overnight, but yeah, that's right. when, okay. yes, good calls started coming in, and I started doing um, um, TV calls for Hanna-Barbera cartoons. Right, was doing which, that. One, which, one, which ones? All of them. Every Tuesday morning. We, really? Uh, we would do uh, a three-hour call with a 40-piece orchestra at Evergreen, Artie Butler's studio in Los Angeles, and we would record for Scooby-Doo, Flintstones, just all the Hanna-Barbera, all the cues for the yeah. for that week of their cartoons. Wow. And um, it's a big orchestra and, and loads of fun to do that. Yeah. It's, it's all charted, obviously. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so before the Brother to Brother thing, were you in the studios much? I was doing demos. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of people stuff. were doing... Um, uh, song demos back yeah, then. I understand. Yeah, yeah. Everyone that, that was, was a, that was a whole thing too. Wasn't oh, yeah, there's tons of that because everyone that was a composer trying to pitch their tunes needed to go into a studio, get a band, cut the song, and then they could shop it to to their artists. And yep. So there was that kind of work around. Yep. But no, I hadn't done any um, uh, major artists Commercial at that point. Type, yeah. Type stuff. Yeah. Not till Brother to Brother hit. Then I was exposed and worked for Barry Manilow, Barry White, and you know got more. Bigger calls because again because the exposure was there. Yeah, yeah. Did um, Barry Manilow call you himself? Well, that was another funny one. I was yep. playing with a um, jazz musician uh, and studio musician, Tom Rotella, who's a fantastic jazz guitarist. And we had a, well, he had a band, and I was playing bass in the band. And our drummer was Art Rodriguez, and um, it was great. Jazz, fun jazz group that we played at Dante's and the Baked Potato and just for fun, you know, we played his music, Tom's music. And we were employed to play one night at a college campus on a Friday night and 
which you can imagine is just a big excuse to get trashed, you know, for the students. And so we, pl- we went and played there that night and nobody was listening, of course, you know, because they're just there to get hammered and yep. blow off some steam. Yep. But I, again, the same thing. I didn't, wasn't playing synth bass with, with Tom, but I was playing just a regular electric bass and I almost took in my small rig, you know, little studio, <laughs> tiny little box. Cause I thought, who's going to hear this anyway? It doesn't, but no, drag the good stuff in, you know, and I did. And we just did our set, didn't think a thing of it. And Victor Vanacore, who was Barry Manilow's musical director, mm-hmm. happened to be there visiting his little brother who was going to college there. He just came in that night to have a beer with his little brother. Right. And he heard the band. Then six, month le- six months later, they were looking for a bass player to do some recording on one of Barry's albums and do a tour. And my name came up and Victor said, yeah, yeah, I heard that guy somewhere. Yeah. So I got a call awesome. and um, went in and did a few sessions with him and... Um, and we, we hit it off, and then I was asked to do the tours, and toured for about right, a year and a half. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. On the planes? And yeah. Yeah, yeah. But that's a, another one that came about by, had I, who knows, if I had dragged my little amp to make the lug easy and not been heard, he might have just said, thought, oh, can't really hear that guy. I don't know if he's playing well or not. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. And what was, what was he like? Victor or no, Barry? Barry, yeah. Barry, terrific. Yeah. And Victor too. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Barry was—he's an excellent musician. Um, yeah, and um, spoke our language. You know, when he at rehearsals, okay. if he wanted things faster or slower, or that the not dynamics changed, he would know exactly in the score where to point to and say, "Oh, good. Do this here and do that there." Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, he's an excellent musician. Yeah, um, I've got Jose Feliciano here as well. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. I never met him. Oh, you didn't? I did the whole album. We tracked the whole album. And uh, Dan Sawyer was a studio guitar player, was hired to come in and play all of Jose's parts. And it was all um, arranged, you know, because it was a small, uh, I think it was maybe 18 or 20-piece band playing on on this album. And uh, so we cut the tracks to Dan playing the guitar parts. Right, sort of ghosting it. Yeah, playing playing Jose's parts so we could understand... Um, the emotion of of what's going on, okay, and um, and then and then Jose came in after all the tracking sessions and laid down his guitar part and did his vocals, right. And that's that's that was not uncommon, really. To, right, okay. I, and even if the artist was there, they wouldn't necessarily lay down their final track at the same time. It'd right. be a scratch vocal or something, yeah, just know, to give us a vibe, yeah. yeah. Same, I did an album with Helen Reddy the same way. Right. I never met her. Spent a whole week tracking at Conway Studios, and but she then she came in later and did the put her vocals on. What does that feel like, though? Not, we, you know you're working and, and not meeting them. Oh, well, it's okay. It's, yep. Yeah. Yeah, it's a job, and There's you go in and you yeah, do what right, you do okay. with, with, yeah, you try and work as a section mm. and, and, uh, and collaborate with the producer and follow instructions of, Dynamics, you know, whether it's to be intense or, or not. Yeah, it's where where it's supposed to go for it and where it's not. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, was the the synth bass put away at this stage? It was starting to be. Okay. Yeah, because it doesn't work for everything. It's yep. really only for music like Gino that's original okay. sounding yep. music where you you can't really take it along and play it to existing like a pop band or something okay. because it just or you could play the synth parts but you wouldn't. Especially the way it was, that it, it's, it was almost like two voices in the way I played it. Um, if, if anyone listens carefully to Brother to Brother, you'll hear the, quite often 
the bass and the synth are playing together, and then the bass, uh, the synth holds one note, and the bass keeps playing, and then the synth filter starts opening and closing, and uh, then and they join all, again. This is all in real time. Right? Yeah, that's in real time. Yeah, right. yeah, wow. that has to be in real time. And you had back then had to pick your patches very carefully because of the delay when it's picked yeah. to voltage delay. Um, it's one and a half times that whatever frequency is playing. Okay. That there's a delay. So the lower the pitch, yeah. the longer, longer the lag, yeah. the, the delay is going to be. Yeah. And if you really want fast tracking, and I do that still now, if I, I have a couple of synth bass systems, and if I really need to track quickly, I'll use a piccolo bass. Okay. Because it's an octave c- higher, c- so it high tracks pit. faster. Oh, right, gotcha. Oh, wow. But the, uh, I had to pick sounds. and dis- I mean, Again, the, in the beginning, there was no memory even on the Oberheims. You had to just, you had a, it, the Oberheim expander modules came with a thick pad of paper that was the same size as the module and just a drawing, black and white drawing of the module. And you would, by, with pencil, mark in where your settings are to know yeah, where to put right. the filters. And yeah. you just, that's how, that was your memory. You know, you right. tag that as patch one, patch no, two. No iPhones. <laughs> no, no, no. And then yeah. eventually sequential circuits came out with a programmer that would hold 64 patches. And that was fantastic. So I had two of those hooked yeah. into it so I could have 64 uh, banks of memory. Wow. But again, all pre-MIDI, still pre-MIDI. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Was there other systems being made at that time? Not yet. Roland okay. was just... I think they were getting ready. And Roland system came out, I think, about 1980. Okay. And um, I did get one of those when they first came out. Okay. And and then or two of them, I think. And then another one, the the G707, no, the big the big silver one. And Eric Pershing had a lot to do with the design of that. And Eric invited me down to City of Commerce, where Roland was at that time, just to just consult a bit on what features would be valuable or not and uh, so I played a very small part but a small part in that design of that system mm. I still have that system it's a very good one they're all very good but mm. they still suffer from the uh, the problem of pitch to voltage conversion so the lower you're playing the more lag there's going to be you have to be careful of what patches you, you pick right um, and I'm sure there's modern day versions of it now there it's still if unless it's a you can get very close to a lot of synth sounds by using distortion pedal and and a envelope filter yep. and combining the two. But uh, it's not a real synthesizer. You can't be opening filters and that sort of stuff. So if gotcha. you really want it to be an uh, analog synth, um, it needs to go through the pitch to voltage or use something like Steve Chick's MIDI bass he made here in Australia where the frets are actually, there's tiny wires under the fretboard. Right. So as soon as the string touches the fret, there's instant recognition, just like a key, a regular keyboard. If you were to take a Roland or Yamaha keyboard apart, you'd see underneath the key, when the key goes down, there's a little con- two contacts that meet and say hello, and then bang, instantaneously it knows what, what pitch, what voltage to send out. Gotcha. So with Steve's invention, the string touches the fret, instant recognition of what note it is, but no note is sent until the right hand strikes the string, and then the pickup senses whether it's loud or soft, and then sent, and that's beautiful tracking on that system. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Instantaneous. Almost. Yeah. yeah. While you were touring with Barry, um, did he have you sort of locked down where you couldn't go out and do anything else? Or did that just take up all your time? Oh, no, no. When you tour, you're, you're given a, 
itinerary, you know, mm-hmm. you know, when you're leaving and when you're coming back. Yep. And, and even with tours like very big, long ones, you're never out for months at a time. You go oh, out right. for okay. 10 days, two weeks, you're home. Oh, right. okay. home it, that's if you're touring the States, you know, and you, you go out for 10 days or a couple of weeks and then you're back for maybe a week or a few days okay. and then you go back out and you come back. And unless it's Europe or Asia or something, then you're out a little longer, but never, I don't think we were ever away more than maybe four or five weeks at a time. Okay. And then, and then we returned back to home. Mm. Yeah, it was a well, with his show in America. It was arenas and a huge circular stage right. that, that revolved around in, in the round. And light rig was above us, and and sound was suspended above us. And so it took. I think there were five semi trailers and mm. uh, oh, dozens of crew to to set the whole thing up and tear it down. So mm. it was a big move and so you'd rarely have two nights in a row just okay. you couldn't get it set up and torn down that would, yeah. that quickly so you'd do one night somewhere in a stadium mm-hmm. in an arena and you'd have a day off and then fly to the next wherever you're going next have the day off there then the following night mm-hmm. a, a new show and on those days off were you were you lining up sessions or oh no we're just completely Oh yeah, I have day off. I had fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah <that's laughs> I, I loved yeah. a couple of the guys in the band. Um, we'd put our walking shoes on and go exploring, and yeah, just yeah. Feel, figure we're in this town. Let's go have fun and see what's go to the museums and art galleries and just see the sites if there's, you know, local attractions. Yeah, what year was that? Ooh, that was eighty two, eighty two, eighty three, round in there. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Um, now Barry White. Did you get to meet him? Or was yes, that oh, yes. Yeah, okay. I did uh, one album with him called Change, and it was uh, at his studio. He had a beautiful studio in Sherman Oaks. Behind his house, he had a five-bedroom house that was gutted and turned into a gorgeous recording studio. Right. And we did the tracking there. Okay. Yeah. And what were some of the songs off that album? I can't remember. Okay. I know Change was one of them, that, that, that title of the album, mm-hmm. and I don't remember. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um. Now, Boy Meets Girl. Ah, oh, yeah. Yeah. You didn't play on Waiting for a Starter for. No, I don't think I did. I was looking at the, the uh, yeah. music notes today. Yeah. But you played on just about everything else. I played on everything. I think yeah. that's all synth bass on that one. Yeah, right. George yeah. is a, it's George Merrill. Boy Meets Girl is a fantastic songwriting and recording act. George Merrill and Shannon Rubicam, mm-hmm. who were married at that time. Mm-hmm. And, um, they wrote also, uh, I Want to Dance with Somebody and How Will I Know. Oh, did they? Yeah. Oh, right. They're fantastic songwriters. Right. Because um, that's one of my all-time favorite songs. Yeah. Waiting for a start. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a beautiful song. Right. All, all their material just is the, just great. And I think the, the, the synth. That's George. Yeah. 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 George is a fantastic musician, singer, and arranger. Mm-hmm. A really clever arranger. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think drums on that would have been uh, Mike Jokum, Michael Jokum. And guitar was uh, John Goo, mm-hmm. was a great guitar player mm-hmm. on all those. And uh, sax was um, oh, Gary Herbick. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Did you tour with them or just no, nev- no, never toured with them. Yeah. Just just did the records. So was was Barry one of the only? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I okay. didn't do a lot of touring. Um, yep. I didn't. I did with Barry. Mm-hmm. Um, the money was very good, mm-hmm. and and um, and the conditions of travel were very good. So it was. Fun, of but uh, it, it just wasn't, and still not a big traveler. I do tour a bit, 
here and there, a little bit rather, not a, not a lot, not a big bit, but a little bit. Mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of traveling. I mm. just but um, go occasionally. Mm. Pretty much stay at home. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Comfortable home. Yeah, no, of course. Um, okay, so it, you know, you you got your head right into this studio scene. Um, when did you decide that you were going to move ah, away from the states? Yeah, I can't remember exactly. There's not any one point, but I just was it the work. Sorry, was the work starting to no? Do, no? I was doing okay. good. Yep, I I loved L.A. Um, yep. I'd never lived anywhere but L.A. Okay. I was married to an Australian at that time, and uh, we had one little girl, my daughter Ashlyn, and I just. Uh, I'd been to Australia on tour the very first time was in 1979 with Demis Roussos. And I'm not a mystical person or religious, but when I came to Sydney, I felt something. I just loved this city and then saw the rest of the cities on the tour and loved all of Australia. And uh, so uh, I did meet someone here and we got married. She moved to LA. Then we moved back here in 87 Mm -hmm. and, uh, then divorced in 1990, and then I got remarried again uh, to my wife Melanie now in '94, mm-hmm. and but before that, so between '87 and '90, my son Sean was born, so I have two children, okay. and then um, uh, I forgot your question. I asked, yeah, yeah, sorry, was there a moment where you decided to move from the state? Oh well, yes, so yeah, you, you, yeah you've I don't know, I just loved your... Sydney. Yeah, yeah, I loved, yeah. really loved Sydney, and I just thought. I think it'd be a great place for my daughter to grow up. And, yep. and uh, so we moved here. In the first couple of years, I was hardly here. I was commuting a lot back and forth, working for George, okay. George Shannon, uh, George and Shannon. Um, also for Jeff Tysick, another He's a jazz producer. I did quite a few albums with him, with Doc Severinsen and Alvin Vizzuti, okay. another trumpet player. Yep. And, and Jeff Tysick's tr- jazz trumpet player and producer. I was commuting back and forth to do recordings with them. And back, back, and, back to and the to, yeah, to LA and yeah. to New York, yeah. And then, uh, but then by about nineteen ninety one, ninety two, I started to just spend more and more time here and not commuting. It was too hard to keep both careers going at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And and I do love it here, mm. so I just stayed, did more and more here. Plus, it, it also was starting to get the music industry was starting to change, change by then. Yeah. There just weren't as many records being made and the budgets were starting to come down. There wasn't right. as much money as there used to be to yep. l- let them fly people around. And, right, I and, understand. Yeah. So you had to sort of, yeah. Make a choice whether Make to go choice. back or stay. Yep. Yeah. Um, what sort of se- sessions were you doing here? Here, um, TV shows. Um, did worked for Pete Best on Wild Side and... and um, Mike Pajanic on Home and Away did that for many years. Did the music again? That was a early morning start. We'd start at every Tuesday at eight a.m. and do three hour call for the week's worth of cues that Mike would write for Home and Away with a five piece band or right. six piece band. It was. Who was the band? It was um, Tom Ferris on guitar. Mm-hmm. Uh, drums were um, sometimes Rob Kitney, sometimes uh, oh dear, uh, <laughs> it'll come back to me. Yeah, and cool. two keyboard players. Uh, David Fennell and Tony Ansel, and Doug Gallagher. That's who it was. Okay. Doug Gallagher. Yep. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, we would. Uh, so, I guess that's a five piece band, isn't it? Yeah. And we'd do the sessions there. And then I did some recording and live playing with Tommy Emmanuel when mm-hmm. I first came and worked with him. And oh, 
Then eventually, and then in the nineties, Roy and HG did their TV yep. show. Oh, see, so were you playing in the live yeah. band? Oh, yeah, right. yeah, right. And that, who was in that band? That was uh, Andy Gander. Oh yeah, on yeah. drums. Oh yeah, and um, Jamie Rigg was the musical director. Yep. Paul Thorne on trumpet and uh, Marty Hill on saxophone, and Rex Go on guitar. Yeah, it was right. that was a fantastic, fun show to be involved in. Very creative. Yeah, I came to Australia in '94. Mm. 94, yeah, not, end of 94. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that show was, that was, yeah, we used to all sit down and watch that. Yeah. Cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, what about live playing uh, besides besides the... Oh, gee, it's typical here. What I did in L.A., it's quite a variety. Sometimes, a couple of weeks ago, I was working with the Sydney Symphony Orchestra playing yep. electric bass. They were mm-hmm. doing the film... Um, Casino Royale. So oh no, sorry. Back then, back then. Oh, yeah, oh, we'll move move up to that. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, back then, same. Did same, some, same did work with SSO. Did some tours here with Shirley Bassey and um, oh, everything. Nice. I've always been freelance. I'm not picky. If it's yeah, good right, music okay. and good musicians, yeah. I'm I'm there. I'd like to play. It doesn't have to be a huge crowd. Me on the spot yeah, that's all right. <laughs> but it's um yeah yeah. So some of the acts were you know. Really big names, and mm. some were really small names, yep. but um, that I just enjoyed. Sam McNally, we had a band with David Jones. It was, yep. it was Sam and, and David's band. I was playing the bass in it, mm. but that was loads of fun to play their music, their their original music. Sam's a cool cat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Chad Wackerman, mm. how did your association with Chad come well, about? Well, Chad moved here um, about the same time I did, yep. or shortly after, I think it was, and... Um, we knew each other a little bit in L.A., but we didn't work a whole lot together. We worked, I think we did some sessions for Kenny Poor, jazz producer there from Texas, but he used to always fly to L.A. to do his recording. And, um, but we really got to know each other when, when he was living here, and then we wound up doing his group, the Chad Wackerman Group, which we did a lot of concerts and recordings with. Um, and then also Chad and I just, we co-produced quite a bit of stuff together, and we um, played for backing different artists um, until he moved back, back to LA. Right, he had his own studio here. Didn't yes, he, with Peter Northcote. Is that right? Well, he had the studio that's below Megaphone in St. Peter's. Mm-hmm. It was called Air Motion. It was built by Guy Dickerson, and Chad took that over and was renting that room. It's a beautiful small room. Yeah. And then I think Peter came in towards the end uh, of Chad's. Chad had it all to himself for several years. Then Peter and him became partners in it. Okay. Then when Chad moved back, Peter just took it over. Okay. And it was Peter's room then. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about drummers that you've played with in Australia, because I'm a drummer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, I like to talk about drums, obviously. Yes. So you've played with some pretty sort of heavy cats. Now, what do you, um, what do you look for in a drummer? What, what, what's... Hmm. If you know what I mean by that question, yeah. what what do you prefer in a drummer? Yeah, well, what, in, don't, what don't you like? In one sense, I try to be adaptable, you know, and not say it has to be this way or that way. I, yep. try, I think any collaboration, musical collaboration, um, in popular music, you know, not a film score, or but um, when you're given a master rhythm part or even a rhythm section part but there's some interpretation to be done still it's not exactly note by note that they want played my favorite kind of drummer is someone that communicates well that 
we can talk to, to each other and talk about the kick drum and the bass, whether we're going to line it up together or whether we're not, you know, whether what style we're doing and, um, and have a talk before we even play the song of, of, or even after we've done the first take, then just get together and say, let's build it up here. Or you take the fill there and I'll take the fill there. And that's, I love that collaboration. Mm. And, um, most drummers are that way. Some aren't. Some are just more of a, no, I don't want to talk about it. I don't know what I'm going to do. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll just see if it works or not. Mm. And that's another approach. Mm-hmm. It's and not, that, could, that, it's, could, that could work? It can work. It's not my way, no. my favorite way to work, sure. yeah. but it does work for many people. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Mm. But my, my preferred way is to have more of a, a plan or at least a framework and then improvise within that framework mm. rather than just go freely and, and see which way the wind blows. Mm. But both do work. Do you notice a difference in the American and Australian drummers in regards to that kind of stuff? No. No? No, there's brilliant players here. Mm. The, the main Rivers. difference is the lack... It's not a, there's not a lack of great musicians in Australia. There's a lack of opportunity mm. in Australia. And um, so many of the musicians I've worked with here, the drummers... And everyone else, but but the, just if we're talking about drummers, they're world class. And had they been born in L.A., you know, when I was born there, they'd be doing great. Yep. They'd, they'd be fantastic. There's nothing lacking whatsoever. You've got Gordon Rittmeister, Andrew Gander, um, Bill Cazellis. Um, oh, here, here we go. And I'm going to leave people out and I'm going to be so <laughs> mad at myself. But there are Jim Peace. There's um, wonderful artistic drummers here that, um, uh, uh, you know, very creative, very um, capable of playing any style and, mm. and, and listening and adapting and just lack of opportunity. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I've got a massive list of people that you played with, you know, but right. yeah. Um, there was a, a heavy metal band years ago called Crocus and I was called in to do play on their album. And um, just to play the bass, they I, they were in between bass players at the time. That wasn't a member of the band, so I was a studio musician and called in to just play bass on this one album called Change of Address. And it was it was great fun. And uh, what the, the funny thing that happened on that was I was very nervous because I'd never worked with a heavy metal band before. Mm. So I got we, again. It was about a week's worth of work and in Hollywood, and we did the first couple of days tracking and one day we broke for took a, took a break for lunch and Fernando Von Arb was the, the lead singer and all these guys looked fantastic you know 80s hair and <laughs> and great clothes and uh, platform shoes and uh, just dressed beautifully but they were real rock and roll you know right. was, and they were just like that for the session was yeah it was just <laughs> normally their their look and oh, um yeah. and they were really successful really successful at that time and so they said, "Come with us to lunch," and I thought, "Oh no, that's okay. You know, I'll just, I'll, I'll just get something local." And no, no, come on, come with us. I thought, "Okay." I thought, "This will be wild, I'm sure." We went to Musso and Frank's, which is a very old, established Hollywood restaurant that serves martinis. It's a very old school, um, conservative restaurant. Mm. So we went in, we sat down, we ordered, and. I didn't. I didn't know what to expect. Whether these guys were going to get wild and have a food fight, or you know, <laughs> but they were totally normal. Yeah. And then when the check came, uh, Fernando said to the waiter, Fernando, Fernando, uh, he, um, 
he was Swiss, and he said with his accent, I can't do the accent. He said, could we have separate checks, please? And he looked at me, he said, it's for tax reasons. We, you know, we t- <laughs> <laughs> they were totally, he was totally together, totally, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, a businessman and um, very calm and not wild, not rude. Right. Uh, yeah. So it was uh, just something I wasn't expecting. I thought from their from, from the look of them and and from the style of music that they played and the bands in in that era in the early 80s you know yeah. they were wild mm-hmm. tv sets being thrown out of the yeah. hotels and stuff and, yeah. yeah rolls royces get driven into the pool and... yeah but well, they were yeah, yeah and they were just the opposite yeah yeah, yeah. cool yeah um what inspires you these days yeah i don't know i think it's just the th- partly the thrill of the unknown of getting on stage and 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 off we go. I still love going to just about every job that I go to. I don't take anything that I don't want to do. And um, I'm always thrilled driving there. You know, I'm not always thrilled driving home, of course, because it's life. But mm. um, but it's always still... So nothing... I think just the, the idea of getting together with other like-minded people and getting together and sitting on a stage and working towards one goal. And if everybody's locked in, it's just an incredible high. It's just Mm -hmm. such a joy to lock in with some fellow musicians and an artist and really pull something off well. And it doesn't matter whether it's a huge crowd or a small crowd or whether the record's a hit or it's not a hit. You just know in that moment you've done something. And we know, the musicians often know, we've all... probably done it too you've played with a group sometimes and you look at each other and go yeah this was we really nailed that tune it was great and not everyone notices but yep. and that's not really why I do it it's there's a saying by Confucius I don't know the exact wording but the the version I heard was I don't seek to be famous I seek to be worthy to be famous mm. and I really love that because it's uh that's what I try to do when I go to any job is take the right equipment, show up on time, make sure I'm rested, prepared, and in a good frame of mind and, and, and do a really good job with mm-hmm. others. And if we're all together, it's going to be a great night. It's mm-hmm. going to be a great, a great event, whether it's a small club or recording session or TV show, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, you feel fantastic. What does the next 12 months hold? I is, have is, no is, idea. Is your book? Oh, I have some things. Yep. Yes, there's some things uh, in there. But oh, sorry, you, but so, there's never. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, you do p- producing yep. as well. Yep, right. yeah, I do, and I compose music. All for... right, let's talk a little bit about, about that. Sorry, I should. Yeah, have, it's all right. Should have mentioned that first. So, um, how much of your time is? It varies. It sometimes it gets really busy with the production. I just finished producing um, an album for a, for a lady that was self-funded. She, she she's a, sort of a new age style and uh so i she plays the piano and sings her name's georgia carr and and she uh takes a lot of the writings from a sufi mystic um named hafez and rumi and she takes that poetry love poetry and sets it to music she plays the piano and sings and on her particular projects i just get a good take of her singing and playing the piano and then i take it home and i score it on this most recent one, I scored it for viola, violin, and flute, and fretless bass, and then some a couple of analog synth parts that was um, to play to thicken it up. And just 
Champa played uh, percussion, hand percussion on about half the tracks. Mm-hmm. On the things that I produce, I never use artificial sounds. I like a drum machine. Yeah, I'm yeah, just yeah. stubborn and old and cranky and Good stuff. real real players because it just sounds better. It's more expensive. It takes a little longer. But if with if I call the right people and I've written clear, concise charts, Chart, yep. it's n- not hard to play at all. Everyone gets it the first or the second take and it falls into place and it's it's very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And so that's the kind of music I like to produce. And, and then I do write... And have written and co-written with, with Chad Wackerman. We co-wrote a lot of things for um, Stuart Livingston and Marty Irwin when they had their uh, company Sonic Assault. It's called production music or library music, and our music gets used on home building shows or when they're doing lotto. You never know where your music's going to show up. Yeah, right. So you write a whole album's worth of a certain genre. So yep. we've done some things that are like 60s pop style. We've done some speed metal stuff with lots of because chad and i are both um we enjoy and and we both cope well with odd times and metric modulation and so we've written some wild you know crazy stuff that gets used in um uh, extreme sports snowboarding some guy screaming down a hill they'll sometimes use our music for that we never know where it's going to show up you just every three months you get your check get your check yeah and you think oh that's good or no no one liked this this quarter we'll see what happens next quarter so when you get that check does it tell you where yes yeah you can see exactly when the world where it was used what for whether it was fred's tires in sweden or or a japanese product in japan so what's the most bizarre place you've seen oh Stuff uh, no, it I, no, nothing bizarre. Just okay. it's all over the world. Yeah, yeah it wow. just depends on who's used it somewhere, and it gets logged, and then you you see it on your statement of where it's where it show what country it came from. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's but I, I, that kind of music is uh, I love writing it and co-writing it. Uh, mm. it's, it's, I just finished one for Art Phillips, who owns his own company here in in Sydney, uh, Music One Hundred and One, and he's. Uh, he commissioned me to do 12 tracks featuring fretless bass, but it's all ambient and floating. And so again, scored that for, I played fretless bass and piccolo fretless bass and used, um, uh, Bill Risby on keyboards on, on, I think we used Wurlitzer and Rhodes and David Longo on electric guitars, Gordon Rittmeister on drums and, but very floaty ambient. But, and that was just released, I think, several months ago. So I won't see whether that's doing well or not for several, well, maybe even a year till the, till the right. residuals come, finally come back and come around. But you never know with that kind of music. It's not, mm. it's not logical. You can write something that you think is really good and yep. it just never gets heard just because a music editor somewhere in the world wasn't aware of it or they were, ran out of time to audition stuff and didn't get to it. Mm. And other times you write... Some, I did one with Chad. We did an album with Stuart Livingston uh, years ago with um, Zamba. I had the 13th track, which was the whole track, the whole album was really up and happy and positive, and that's what the whole project was about. I had written this one really depressing song where I played a baritone guitar on it, and it was low arpeggios, and it was very depressing and slow and and heavy, and Stuart didn't like it, and he said, "Oh, we're not going to put this on the record because it's too, it's too, it doesn't fit the rest of the album." Well, when back then they were making CDs, and so at the end, when it was all finished, Adrian Boland was the engineer, and he had mixed everything. And he said, "Adrian said to Stuart, well, we have room on the CD to throw that thirteenth track in if you want to.'" 
And Stewart said, yeah, throw it in, I guess, you know, can't hurt. It got onto Oprah. On a, wow. Yeah. <laughs> they used it on one segment on Oprah. Yeah, right. And so you just never know. Yeah, You yeah. just never know. And it's weird that it even got discovered, how that one depressing track was discovered on a whole CD's worth of uplifting happy music that Chad and I had written. But somehow the music editor found it. And so, yeah, wow. Yeah. Would that, that stuff be getting harder to, to um, be discovered now? Because since the studio sort of works died up, people aren't doing the sessions, people are trying to supplement their or not supplement their income, but they're still trying to make money. You think there's more people doing that kind of stuff these days? Doing the production music? Yeah. Oh, yes, there's, mm. there's always been a lot of people doing it. Mm. And there's... I mean, more, more so now? Uh, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably more and more. Mm. It's... Um, but that industry is is changing. Twenty years ago, you couldn't, you know, somebody would be doing an ad and say, "Oh, we want a track that sounds like some current song of the day." Yep. But and they they wouldn't even approach the artist because the artist would say, "Oh, no way! I'm going to, you know, promote your your tire mart, you know, your your tire store somewhere. That's not what I want to do." Yep. Um, so they would turn to production music to get something that didn't get them sued, but it would sound a similar vibe to what, what it was. Gotcha, yeah. And that's not the stuff that I did. Everything I did was always, and Chad, we, we always strove it's to do unique, a, a unique stuff because yeah. that's just what we like. But there are things in lots of projects where they do sound like this band or sound like that band. Not enough to get sued, but it's, it's got the flavor. You get the idea of what it is. But these days, someone, an advertiser using a promo for a television show, they'll go to the main artist at Universal or, or, or Sony and say, we want to use your track, your hit track. And because there's not as many units sold as there used to be, many times, most of the times, the publishers and the artists will say, yeah, let's strike a deal. Sure, you can use our mm-hmm. product and give us, we'll get paid the money for it, and they'll put a watermark on the, on the, on the promo saying what song and what track this is to, right. to push them, yeah. which makes sense to do that. Yeah. But so it's it's cutting into the uniqueness of what library or production music used to be. Mm. So that industry is starting to change as well. Everything changes. It's of always yeah, yeah, yeah. Just when, just like operating systems on the Mac. Just as soon as you get used to something and master it, there's a new one that comes out. Today, yeah, yeah. Um, how do you write for drummers? Well, I don't write very good drum parts. I mainly I'll. I'll if it's really a specific groove, I will write it out. Yep. But most of the time, I've written the tune and the basic groove, and I haven't really nailed down the exact part that I want. So I'll just give Chad or Gordon or whoever I'm tracking with, let them hear the bass part or play it for them, you know, and give them a blank um, a chart with the bar numbers. I'm, I'm really good at lining up bar numbers and rehearsal marks, letter A, letter B, letter C. So we're all on the same page. We, and I lock it into my, I use digital performers so that even when we're recording, if I quickly want to go to bar 64 and hear something, I'm not searching for where's that bit that goes after the other bit in the middle of the bridge. Yep. So doing that, um, and then I'll just collaborate with them really yep. and just say, you know, there's lots of things you can do, but I hired you because you're great. So what do you, what are your options? What would you bring to the table? Yeah, and right. Chad does the, has done the same with me, where he'll write his drum part and say, "Now, what what kind of bass part do you think you want to mm. approach this with?" Mm. And do you do you write it with dynamics? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, that's good. yeah. Dynamics, any any hits, any tooties, you know, that have to. Everybody has to play it together or stop. And in production music, um, library music, production music, um, you have to also write things that are uh, 
out of the two and a half or three minute song, they have to be able to extract a one minute version. And I mean a minute to the millisecond, exact. So that when the reverb dies, it's exactly one minute long. Ah, right. So it can go to air, right. used for an ad. And you, you also have to, have to do like one that. that's 30 seconds, and you do one that's 15 seconds, and then anywhere from five to eight seconds stings, just a little stinger at the end. And that gets used for commercials, you know, for, for advertising on commercials or in the background of, of promoting some other show. Uh, or sometimes it gets picked up by a radio show, but they'll use it at the end of an interview to play that stinger. That becomes sort of the theme of their show. So in writing all the compositions, I then have to do a little bit of math and look at the, the tempo that I'm at and how many bars and beats do I need to give me exactly 15 seconds. And sometimes you can extract it out of the piece and say, oh, we'll, we'll record, you know, and we'll, we'll cut you know, from bar 7 to 11, then we jump over to bar 32 and 33, and then we jump right to the end and end it, and that gives us exactly 30 seconds, and it works. Other times it doesn't, so you have to write the one minute or the 30-second piece that. To, yeah. that still fits the melody and what's going on. Mm. And I forgot why I was telling you that. It was fascinating yeah. anyway. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, I was asking about, about dynamics. Yeah, oh, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And so, yes, the dynamics are def- most definitely written in. Yeah. Yeah. What sort of percentage of your your income is is that? It's cha- it changes. It, it, it changes, changes from year or even yeah. from quarter to quarter. Some okay. sometimes it's I'm really busy playing the bass, and other times I'm not playing the bass at all, and I'm I'm composing or, or producing. And there's no, I'm I'm no good at predicting. I don't know if anyone is, you know, of, of when the work's going to come in. At least the type of work I do, it's not predictable. I can't say there'll always be you know, a need for library music in January or it's just whenever a company uh, yep. that I've uh, worked for or, or know of me or I know of them say, oh, we're looking for a project. And there's some some of the production music things I turned down because they, they asked me to do it. And I said, look, it's just not my bag. I'm not really strong at that. So I'm just not, not going to take it on because I can't do a great strong job at it. Mm. So, I, but I never know. Like you asked earlier, what what's the next 12 months for me? I have no idea. I do have some things in the book. Yep. Some gigs penciled in, and or well, written in, sure. uh, confirmed, and others are on hold. But everything is subject to change, because even a gig that might be in six months that I've put in, if a tour or a project comes up, I might have to call up whoever's booked me and explain and say, look, I've just picked up a week's worth of work in there, so I'll need to send... A substitute in. Let's let's talk about who you want to get to replace me for that. Mm. And every time, really, um, everyone understands that. That it, I mean, I wouldn't cancel on someone because I've got a job that pays a few dollars more. Or yeah. But um, but if it's a major project that conflicts with something, yep. uh, people are always adaptable and understand that because we all go through that. We all yeah. we all yeah. have that come up. Mm. Do you still practice? No. No, I don't much anymore. Um, I play my instruments when mm-hmm. I'm setting them up. I do the minor setups, and, I, and I'll test them that way. But I don't really practice anything. I do a lot of listening, mm-hmm. and, and I think that would qualify as my practicing, in that because I don't need to play everything, but some, just by hearing yep. some recordings and, or some approach that a bass player has taken, uh, it'll go in and I'll think, yeah, I, I see what he's done there, and I'm going to try that. And, and you do. Yeah. 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 It, yeah. Whether it be just... Uh, I guess the only practicing I do would be in sounds that I do sometimes 
okay. set everything up and start working on some of my effects to try and get a unique effect or work work with one of my compressors to think if I want to... Um, I've been getting more and more into compression lately. I used to n- never, ever use it. Mm. Um, not that I hated it. I just didn't think about it. And now I'm starting to really enjoy it and use it as a tool, um, as an effect. Yeah. Yeah, using it. So I've got quite a few different compressors that I... I'll spend time with those, just trying to understand how each one works differently and, and which bass I'm playing and how I, how hard I'm hitting it, that mm. sort of thing. What's your go-to recording compressor? Oh, I don't have one. It's um, Well, when I record, I always record flat, no EQ, no compression. So okay. All that comes afterwards. Okay. Yeah, and even if I'm tracking... Well, that's it, probably credit to your playing and the way you set your gear up too, that you can... Well, the, you can get away with... Yeah, the basses, the, the Marussi bases, bases yeah. with, the, with the Bartolini pickups, they're yep. so even. They're such an yeah. even sound. Mm. Uh, they sound beautiful. And so, uh, and it's not just the Maruzzi basses. There's many basses that are just wonderful. They just sound fantastic, just straight. So I'll always record flat. Mm-hmm. And even if, if I'm recording for someone and they say, look, we do want some active EQ. We want that sizzling sound of the 80s, you know, with a bright EQ. So I'll use, my basses um, are all passive, and a few of them do have active preamps on them, but I always just turn them off. I don't think the batteries even, probably aren't batteries in there. I run them passive, and if I do want that active sound with the sizzling highs, the mid scooped out, and the thundering lows, I go to a parametric. I use TC parametric EQ, and I'll dial it in that way. That way I can be very specific as to the sound I want, because onboard preamps, even the really good ones, you're still doing you, when you turn your highs and your mids or your lows you're you're only doing what somebody has done on a parametric and decided how wide the bandwidth will be and what the frequency is going to be you're only limited to that yeah, yeah. and so when i'm doing it with my my own parametric i can decide on which bass i'm playing it on and what kind of music there is how big the kick drum is that i'm playing with because that that really affects the bass sound i'll go with live and recording yep. is to the drummer's kick that he's using in fact i panic when i get a call to do a session and they say well we haven't done the drums yet we've just got this drum loop and we'll put the drummer on next week or something and i think oh no well, who's uh-huh. it going to be and what's he going to sound like what's how big's his kit because yeah. or the kick drum because yeah. if he's got a massive you know wonderful big gushy kick drum yeah. i need to dial my tone a little bit tighter and thinner mm. and play a little closer to the bridge and be a little bit more precise. On the other hand, if he's playing with a small little jazz kit or something, then I can move my right hand closer or further away from the bridge, closer to the neck and get a big warm sound. Mm. But not knowing what the drums are going to do is, is so what, it's a so shot what would, in the dark. So what would you do in that situation then? I'd go for the middle. Yeah, for the yeah, middle. Just for say, the middle. Yeah, and just think I, I'll just play it safe. I'll just go in the middle. Mm. it's not my favorite way to record no no I'm sure yeah. yeah I don't think anyone really likes that unless it's you can get away with that with like a film score or if it's dance music or something where you know look you just this one little cog in the yeah. the big machine gonna, you just do your loop thing and off you go okay squash it all up anyway yeah. so yeah but if it's yeah. any any kind of popular music or jazz there, there should I like to be some some interaction mm. yeah well, Leon, it's been awesome talking to you. Um, been looking forward to this one for a while. So, um, oh, thank you. Um, thanks for having me at your house. A um, pleasure. Good to yeah. have you here. And um, all the best for the next twelve months and onwards. And 
Yeah, look forward to catching up with you soon. Well, thank you. Thank che- you. Cheers look forward then. to hearing more of your podcast, oh, too. Oh, thank you very much. I've listened to a couple, and the right. few that I've listened to this week, I've really enjoyed, and I'm, I've got them on my list to, to listen to them all. Awesome. And I am looking forward to hearing them all. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thanks, Leon. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye.